This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today, my guest is Charles F. Walker. Charles Walker is Professor of History and the Director of the Hemispheric Institute on the Americas at University of California, Davis. He has previously held a MacArthur Foundation Endowed Chair in International Human Rights, and he's published widely on Peruvian history, truth commissions, and historiography in both English and Spanish. Notably, his Spanish language publications include both translations of his work, but also works published originally in Espanol. His 2014 Harvard University Press, The Tupac Amaru Rebellion, was named one of the best books of the year by the Financial Times and won the Hundley Prize for, uh, from the Pacific Coast Branch of the American Historical Association. His other books include, but are not limited to, Smoldering Ashes, Cusco and the Creation of Republican Peru, 1780-1840, out with Duke in uh, 1999, and I love this title, Shaky Colonialism, the 1746 earthquake tsunami in Lima, Peru, and its long aftermath, also with Duke in 2008. Professor Walker's research, research interests include Latin American social, cultural, and intellectual history, Peru and the Andes, the history of catastrophes and natural disasters. He's written on earthquakes, and we're both in Northern California. Maybe after this year, he's going to work on fires. <laughs> um, the Tupac Amaru Rebellion, Truth Commissions, and History and Memory of the Shining Path in Peru. In addition to awards for his research, UC Davis recognized him as a distinguished teacher in 2011. Today, we'll be talking about his latest book, Witness to the Age of Revolution, The Odyssey of Juan Batista Tupac Amaru, published by Oxford in 2020. This book is part of Oxford University Press's graphic history series, which takes serious archival research and puts it into a graphic or comic format. For this volume, the brilliant Liz Clark illustrated Dr. Walker's biography of a half-brother of Jose Gabriel Kordankanki, Tupac Amaru, the leader of the 1780-1783 Tupac Amaru Rebellion. Juan Batista was a relatively minor figure in the revolt who was arrested with scores of others in the Spanish repression of the rebellion, rebellion, but he was not executed. Instead, he spent several decades in brutal confinement on three different continents. His life interacts with several phases of the Age of Revolution, and offers a subaltern perspective on the era. As someone who teaches world history surveys and is very insecure of my command of Latin American history, I found the Latin American angle on the age of revolution particularly enlightening. And full disclosure here, I'm also an author in the uh, the graphic history book series. So I was so happy and delighted and proud to see more serious historical topics being brought to life in this graphic format. Witness to the Age of Revolution does a truly stunning job at 
literally illustrating the sprawling Spanish empire from Peru to Argentina to Cadiz on to North Africa. Liz Clark's gorgeous artwork brings images of Iberian colonialism to life in vivid color. We also get a solid introduction to maritime history as Juan Batista is transported halfway around the world. So reading this book is like going on a journey. I should also, uh, also note that Witness to the Age of Revolution is just simply a fascinating story, comparable to the, uh, the tales of the man in the mask, uh, fictionalized by Alexander Dumas. And the friend, there's a, a, a touching story of a friendship between the, this Andean prisoner and a Spanish priest. So it's, it's, it's a delightful piece of research and an incredible story in and of itself. So Professor Charles F. Walker, Chuck, if I may, Welcome to New Books in History. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Before we get into the book, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I can't praise this book enough. I think it's absolutely amazing. Um, before we get into the book itself, please tell us a little bit about, about you and how you came to be a scholar of Peruvian history. I think that as an undergraduate at Berkeley, you studied in Latin America and then went on to pursue degrees, at, uh, an MA at Stanford and a PhD in Latin American history and, and also Latin American literature. But tell, tell us, how, how, how did you come to be a scholar in this? Yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it was in some ways just a fluky experience. I was in high school in your stopping ground, Santa Cruz County, and uh, received the, what was the American uh, AFS fellowship to go study abroad, to spend a year abroad. This is when, uh, this is in the 70s, way back when, and I ended up in Argentina, in Northeast Argentina. Uh, this was while you were still, still in high school? In high school, yes. Oh, so I spent oh, okay. a year abroad, and, and then this is before internet, so, you know, it was full Spanish. And it just, you know, coming from a little teeny town in Santa Cruz County, going into this uh, a partially Jewish family in the midst of a very anti-Semitic coup and a very brutal coup in 1976, it just sh- shook my world, fascinated me. And so that really set me on the path. Um, I always, you know, and when I was at Berkeley, I went to the study abroad program and said, I want to go to Argentina. I said, we don't have a program in Argentina. And after a sort of random, I said, oh, I'll go to Peru. And that really launched me. And it was a point when Peruvian historians had just a huge role in public discussions and debates and people debated the Incas and colonialism and the role of Inca. So I sort of slowly or actually rapidly got really into this and said, wow, these, these are really interesting approaches. And that's got, got me launched into history and also into Peru. And so before, before, graduate, it, yeah. before graduate school, you spent uh, t- uh, extended periods in both Argentina and Peru. Yeah, yeah, that's, right after that's fantastic. I, yeah, yeah, I, I taught uh, I taught at the American School in Lima for three years, oh, and that cool. was a really great introduction. Began to dabble in archives and work, but it was a really important sort of you know experience for me. And then in graduate school, what was your uh, doctoral work on? It was on um, Peruvian history. It was on lower classes, subaltern groups, and the wars of independence. The long from Tupac Amaro. I started in the aftermath of it and then moved on looking at how lower class and particularly indigenous peasants supported caudillos and these strong men. So, and there, my wife and I, as a Peruvian anthropologist, uh, went to do our research in Cusco and we stayed for almost three years. So we lived there for extended period. It's very important to live outside of Lima, to live elsewhere. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. So as I mentioned, I teach world history surveys. So I really appreciate, appreciated this Latin American perspective on a narrative that, you know, I thought I knew pretty well, you know, Atlantic revolutions, age of revolution. Um, and while many of us include Simone Bolivar and, um, and Toussaint Louverture in, uh, in this narrative, 
um, I don't think many of us actually factor in the Tupac Amaro uh, revolt. And you make the case that this is this is a chapter in the age of revolution. So what does adding the Tupac Amaro revolt do for our understanding of this era? Well, I think it, it, it broadens it. I mean, I think we need to move beyond the Eurocentric view. And everyone's Everyone says this, we all are conscious of this, but if you look at textbooks and things, it's a bit of a rubber band. We expand and expand, but in the end, it becomes the Dutch Revolution, the French Revolution, Spain, and now, fortunately, Haiti and the Haitian Revolution, as you mentioned, is in the Pantheon. I think the Tupac Amaru Rebellion, which is 1780s, it's earlier, gives us a broader perspective. It was a very radical rethinking of Spanish colonialism. Um, it wasn't part, per se, of the Atlantic world. It didn't confront a an institution like slavery or a product like sugar, but it really sought to overthrow what, what colonialism was in the period. I think Juan Bautista, because this is later as he's jailed, as he's imprisoned in this Spanish outpost in Northern Africa, Ceuta, I, I, what I found interesting were these worlds of Spanish American um, political prisoners, the, the ties they made, etc., and then also the discussion and the mentions of alternatives, because I think within Spanish America, we often tend to Air by thinking, well, republicanism was inevitable. And they were talking about different forms of monarchism, much more radical projects. So I think it's a, I think it was a series of alternatives that are brought up in the rebellion and in its aftermath. And it's contemporaneous with the, the American revolt against the British, the right. North American revolt. Yeah, the, 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 I think the Spanish were very good at censorship. In, in part because 1780, it had, you know, the US was still forming itself. I think it, was, it wasn't quite the model we could expect, but it was exactly that. It was contemporaneous. And often people forget it was before the French Revolution, before Haiti. So when Tupac Amado was really inventing his project, because as I say in my book and other scholars have said this, um, there's a search for, for a platform. The US is, is one possibility, but there's a very creative search of, what how what to replace the spanish with yeah so now you've literally written the book on the subject so can you walk us through a brief introduction to the tupac Amaro revolution causes consequences um key events uh most important things we should know i mean again you've written a award-winning book on this so give us the give us the elevator pitch right. and the, the things Absolutely. we really need to know well crazy professor warning you know if i go on too long please please stop me this is one of those things that half an hour later that uh, every viewer will turn this off but well the, uh, uh, the cra crazy professor is the target demographic of this podcast so perfect you're in good great company. well the year is 1780 and we're we're in southern peru and cusco which had been the capital of the incas it's an area vast majority are indigenous peasants quechua speaking that is the language of the incas tupac Amaro himself is an ethnic authority a curaco or cacique these are the representatives um, the linchpin, if you will, between indigenous communities and Spanish colonialism. Many of them, like Tupac Amado, had Inca roots, and that's why his name was Condorcanqui, which he pronounced quite well, but he also used his Inca name, Tupac Amado, to emphasize. The Incas had an amazing amount of prestige still. So the, the context are the Bourbon reforms. This is a series of measures by the Spanish to basically to pay off their wars in Europe as they're declining. Um, in, in, in relationship with French and the English, and to a certain degree, the Portuguese. Taxes are increased. Local autonomy, which indigenous people had a great deal of, um, is reduced. And more and more pressure is put on Tupac Amado. He sues. He uses the legal system. He seeks to, to fight the system. And he himself is a fascinating figure. He is also a muleteer. He runs mules from his area in southern Cusco. Um, 
to the mines of Potosi and even into what is today northern Argentina. I also, in the book, stress the importance of his wife, Michaela Bastidas. She is, is very common today in Andean households. The woman runs the household economy and their business, if you will, she stayed home while he was running his mules. She collected the credits, complete credit economy. She's making sure that people are paying. She's making sure they have enough food for the next year, these sort of things. And in the rebellion, she proves to be brilliant in the logistics. She's the one writing letters to him, get back here. We need bullets. Uh, the harvest is coming. We're going to lose people and these sort of things. So one of the, the underlying uh, arguments I make uh, really is a primary one, I would say, is, is her role. So yeah, that came that came out in the book quite quite well. Great. So the, it starts in late 1780. They capture a corregidor, a Spanish authority with whom Tupac Amado had had lunch earlier in the day. He then kidnaps him, a public trial. He brings in indigenous people and others. We actually have an Italian visitor who gives us a testimony of it. And after several days, they execute this authority. So the, um, rebel, the rebels hold a trial. Right. They hold right. a trial, is, much of it in Quechua, and say he has been, he is, and, and they're saying, we're doing this in the name of the king. We are fighting because he, his bat, which is a very standard Spanish, um, if you will, subaltern tactic or, or regional tactic to say, we're killing this guy or sending him out of town or tar and feathering him because the king wouldn't like what he's doing. Um, but so this is November 1780, Tupac leads his troops and they go out and raise haciendas, the estates. Um, they bring down the, te- the, the, the hated informal textile mills, the obraques, they burn many of them and they go after Spaniards. Um, there's actually a term in Quechua, Pucacunca, it's a per- wonderful translation because it means redneck, not our redneck, <laughs> i.e. those who when they work in the fields in the high Andes close to the equator get sunburns like myself really quickly. Um, and go after them, but Tupac Amado has says, don't go after Creoles, Mestizos, and others. It's just bad Spaniards. So just just the peninsulares, just the exact Spaniards and the bad ones. So yeah. so one of the themes is will come back because who is a Spaniard becomes one of the defining themes mm-hmm. in, the, in the later role. Um, the sort of second larger argument of the book is Tupac Amado is spreads rapidly. He goes down towards what is today the Peru Bolivian border, like Titicaca. He comes back. He sieges Cusco, doesn't take it, and then expand, comes back to his base um, and grows. But he's captured in April 1781. And he, Michaela, one son, their inner circle are executed on 17th of May 1781 in this grisly, brutal fashion. He's quartered. She is strangled with a groat, uh, Garrett has her tongue cut, her children have to watch this. And this is, this is one of those, I don't know, Washington crossing the Delaware, one of these moments in history that almost every Peruvian knows about this. It's depicted everywhere in Cusco. But what I argue in the book is the rebellion was not over. It actually continued, and we all knew this, that I had written about it, but most of us put another page or two by his cousin, one of his children, and a relative of Miquela Bastidas. And it actually continues for two years it radicalizes and it becomes this questionable term, a caste war. By then, anyone who's using a button shirt, anyone who speaks Spanish could be considered a gachupin, a royalist. And on the other side, for the Spanish, anyone who speaks Quechua, anyone who's indigenous um, uh, is presumably a rebel. So you get, you know, and the death rate just grows incredibly because there are no prisoners anymore. So towns of 560 
except the people who could run out. You know, we re I realized that they were all dead and things like that. And it goes on for two years. The Spanish at one point are... Two years after the, the execution yeah, of Tumacabra. Yeah, so it goes on into 1781, 82, 83. And the Spanish at one point are saying, we're going to lose. Do we cede this territory? We protect Buenos Aires, protect Lima. And it, it's come and go. The rebels really uh, dominate a huge swath of territory between Cusco and around Puno. And they link with rebels in upper Peru, what is today Bolivia. And it's, this is when the ferocity is just the aggression, the violence is just horrific. And in this very sort of curious ending, the Spanish offer a ceasefire to the rebels. The rebels are exhausted. They're, they're worried about uh, mass starvation. There's actually an environmental element here that I don't develop enough in the book, I don't think. Um, and they take sort of a time, a literal almost a, a timeout, saying, okay, let's catch our breath. We haven't seen our family. And it's this very tense period. The Spanish are split between hardliners and moderates. The moderates are saying, negotiate. We've got to deal with these people. They have a few reasons to be angry. We're the hardliners. And it really made me think of contemporary discourse about terrorism said, no, these are abject, uh, terrible people. They just want to kill us. They're murderers. They're heathens. There was a whole religious element to it. And in a long, complicated story, the Spanish hardliners take power. They claim that the rebels had broken the, the, the treaties and they capture them and execute them in a particular, even more brutal fashion using hot pincers and things like this. So this is 1783 and the rebellion is over. Um, and you, and you, you depict that repression um, quite, quite intensely in the book. I wanted to ask you a bit more about that. But, so, so what was Juan Batista's role in these events? It was surprisingly minor, and it was one that at first I thought, he's a half-brother of Kosei Gabriel Tupacamaru, but in his, the trials against him, he's like, at one point they accuse him of carrying his brother's bed, which is, we, we, we put, it's one of the things that how you have to sort of imagine that. And at first I thought I, it was I didn't know, was, 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 that, was that a high-profile thing or a low-profile thing? I think like, that was low-profile. In, in Southeast Asia, I could see that being, you know, an honored thing, I, but I, like, or I, is I that just like... like it, I think he was, you know, sort of a lackey or secondary. Yeah. At first, the yeah. logic, you know, many other historians have gone gone down this route of sort of, well, they were trying to protect him, you know, because in the trial mm. records, of course, yeah. Michaela Bastidas, the wife said, I had nothing to do with it. He made me do it. He, she accuses him, uh, her husband, Jose Gabriel, of, you know, beating or enforcing him, but which might have been true, but it's, but it's a rouge. It's a fake to get him out. So, right. but I don't think he's that crucial. And that's in the end why his life was saved. Because many, you know, many others were executed. Dozens, up to seventy or eighty people were executed. He wasn't seen as important enough to to kill. Yeah. Um, so, th could you just, just say a few more words on the the Spanish response and the um, how they suppressed re the revolt? I mean, there there's these grisly executions, but there must have been right. a more uh, yeah, intense I mean, counterinsurgency throughout the countryside. There was, but the, the Spanish um, didn't go against. They didn't go massively against. The majority of the people, the indigenous peasantry, yeah. um, the trials were really against people who had been at the front lines of the rebellion, mm. you know, the leaders, and then also Creole supporters. They really, the Spanish courts were were just obsessed by where'd you get your money, 
who did you meet with? And Tupac Amado was a close friend of much of the Cusco elite. I mean, he was this fascinating cultural intermediary where he'd go out and speak in Quechua with peasants and he spent the night there camping, you know, with his mules, but he'd go to high society in Cusco, which was then a bilingual society, Quechua and Spanish. So they're really obsessed with who are your sort of quote unquote important people supporting you. Um, and in the trials, they don't go after many indigenous peasants. And in, in the aftermath, we all expected this was such a bloody affair. We thought there'd be just mass repression, white terror, if you will. And I read, I remember, you know, reading the French Revolution is very important reading. It's almost contemporaneous with this. But I think it's two reasons. I think, A, the Spanish underplayed the role of indigenous peasants in sort of these very racist texts. They said, well, these people are just followers. They're almost mechanical. The leader says what to do at Quechua, and like, you know, or not mechanical, they're like zombies they followed. But I also think some of the smart Spanish authorities, and there were some very smart ones, I mean, they wrote some very reasoned analysis, said, hold it, we almost lost. If we push it too far, we're going to force another rebellion. And I found this brilliantly sort of manipulated by indigenous groups who in the trials 15, 20 years later about other, about taxes or what the priests were doing, they would always say, you have to be careful here. You know, this authority is abusing us or this priest is doing this. And we never want the terrible times of violence return. Insinuating was always, you know, that's why my first book I called Smoldering Ashes. That was a hint. That was actually a metaphor used about this. There was the Spanish feared. They knew they couldn't come in too heavy handed. So the repression, surprisingly, they didn't go in. I'm not defending the Spanish here. The, the immediate repression was brutal, but it wasn't. It wasn't the sort of vengeance afterwards that many of us expected. And I think it's this combination of racism and fear that really marks the Spanish attitude towards Andean peoples. Yeah, that um, that sense of anxiety after the rebellion has been repressed, that smoldering ashes idea. I mean, that for me that resonates with um, memories of 1857 and the British Raj and the mm-hmm. the great uh, the great rebellion. My friend Kim Wagner has written on that and. Uh, the anxiety that really infects the um, the Anglo Indian, uh, the white community in um, in the Raj, all all the way up to Amritsar in nineteen yeah. nineteen. Um, yeah, I think that that that, that uh, Milton Osborne, in, when he writes about colonial Vietnam, talks about background anxiety amongst the mm-hmm. right. population. Yeah, just just to clarify, because this is a word that I I have, I have to teach to my students because many. Um, there's different definitions of it and the American definition is a little different, but in this context, Creole means ethnically Spanish, Iberian, European, but born in Latin America. Correct. Exactly. That's it. So you could be, you know, a classic Spanish last name and, you know, Jose Juan Sanchez Albornoz de la Puente or something like that, but you might be third or fourth generation in the Spanish by, by this becomes very important words of independence. If these people, if their great, great, great grandparents had come from Spain, were they more loyal to Peru or were they more loyal to Spain? In, in fact, part of the Bourbon reforms was getting more Spanish blood in there. The idea of these people would be more objective. They didn't have the, the, the networks of friendships and allies and such that they, the, the Creoles had. And they'd be at odds with the peninsulares who are ethnic Spanish from Spain proper. Exactly. As opposed right. to mestizos, which were right. a huge range of, of ethnic mixings, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then and these are the... And then you get yeah. separate categories that become um, Afro-Peruvian, people of African descent. Right. It's, it's not, it's, you know, 
it's a very important segment of Lima and some of the soldiers sent up from Lima to fight the rebels. Many of them are mulattoes, a category used in a, a mixed race. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, that the intense levels of of racial hierarchies and sorting and the terminology is a, just absolutely fascinating. Um, so, so Juan Batista and his wife uh, survive the executions. They're they're initially released, yeah. and then and then rearrested. Um, what what do you think was going on there? Why? Um, they were initially released because he, he proved um, at the, that he wasn't that important, and he himself was was shocked about it. So he's released. They they walk back home. They say they're taunted by people who are royalists. They're taunted by people who are rebels. I.e., the people who are rebels are saying you didn't do enough for your brother. And then in the sort of roundup of the family after in, in 1783, they're arrested again. They're tricked, brought back. They're they're they're. Their fields are salted, and this is when what he calls his odyssey begins. Right. It's when he's tried and sent to Lima to be, to be ultimately sent out abroad. Yeah, so, so tell us about this journey. I mean, he is on this um, horrifying march through the Andes down to Lima and then sent literally halfway around the world. Um, why? What was, what was the Spanish objective here? I mean, it was clearly punishment, but often they sent people abroad to Presidios, uh, to Chile, to, to Veracruz, to Mexico, or even up to Spain, is to get rid of them. The idea was to get rid of all remnants of the Tubacamado family. So what you what Juan Bautista, and this is what really prompted me to think this has got to be a graphic history, this is so visual. He is sent in chains with his wife, his mother, um, uh, walking obviously from Cusco down to Lima, and they hit pastures that are over 4,000 meters, whatever that is, 12, 13,000 feet above sea level. They're lacking water. His mother dies of dehydration, which you, and, you know, walking these high, very dry, dry Andes that face uh, towards the Pacific. It's just a brutal trip, and this begins this long journey. You know that I mean, this is one of the, if you will, this is why it's too visual because to think of these, you know, Cusco, Lima around the Horn to Rio, then across the Cadiz in southern Spain, then in Ceuta, northern Africa, and then back to Buenos Aires. That is why maps are so important. And, you know, this journey in each, each episode, if you will, had its own horrors that he tells in his memoirs that are the, the base of the book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So just tell us about some of their experience on the ships. And this is, I, I was, it was a delightful surprise to me because I've been reading more about maritime history and got to interview uh, Chris Alexanderson and, about her work in the Dutch colonial empire um, and uh, reviewing a book on pirates, vampires. I've been by chance, I've been getting all this maritime history in the past month. And then this book, which I thought was going to be about prisons and the Andes and uh, some time in Morocco, uh, there's actually a good chunk of maritime history in here. And I learned quite a bit about how the Spanish empire existed at sea. So could you, could you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, this was for me, I, I love with new projects where there's an area I knew nothing about. This is like the earthquake book. I had to go learn a lot more about the history of architecture. I had to learn about, about earthquakes and seismology and such. This was the case here. It was maritime history. It would first 
you know, in part just for the artist, Liz Clark said, what did the boat look like? How many, you know, cannons, these things that these are things that I have no idea about and nothing. So learning about that. But Juan Bautista gives us a very, very vivid description of the horrors in the boat and it's just wretched from the start. He is taught, they were tied together and very quickly his wife dies and there, he describes she's tied to him. They are, um, and they don't dump her into the ocean for at least 24 hours, i.e. he's mourning her, he's, she's dead. This horrible scene that I don't need to go into description, but it's, but it's very few. It was hard. We had to be very careful how to depict that. Um, they're going around the horn and the rudder breaks. And at one point, Joseph Dombe, a, a, a pretty well-known uh, French botanist who's left memoirs about, about the boat, um, he actually has to pay crew members to dive into this icy water to try to fix it. He's in, in, at one point he says, I threw a coin in and somebody dove in and just the thought of diving into icy water, well, icy and probably quite they're, choppy water. They're down in Patagonia or down Terradale? Down in Patagonia, south of yeah, the way cold, 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 cold water, um, barely make it. Uh, the prisoners, you know, are not cook one about these talks about not having an adequate cover. They're, they're freezing every time this icy water comes. They come to Rio, which you think, well, Rio is a beautiful place. It's going to be warm. And he says, my suffering got worse because they tied him to the boat and wouldn't, let, and wouldn't cover him from the sun. So he said his skin was peeling from sunburn. And by then, a significant number of the prisoners had died on board. Um, and only when they finally, months later, launched across the Atlantic, it's worse scurvy is hitting hard. And I didn't know, I mean, you know, I have the one little factoid in the book, scurvy killed more people in the 18th century in boats than all of the maritime battles put together. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're losing, the prisoners are dying around him. And the Spanish are worried about if they were to be taken by an English ship, um, if they were boarded, they would free the prisoners. So the prisoners are, are, are either tied uh, on deck or hidden below. He has one terrible uh, incident where the crew, and he is just, virulently about how, how, how brutal the crew was to them. They tricked him. I mean, they were so hungry, they would throw bones. The prisoners would scramble to try to get what they could. They threw a cracker, basically, and he went to get it, and they had booby-trapped it, and he fell down below, and that's when he broke ribs. And this comes up several times in memoirs of this incredibly painful um, episode that, that the rest of his life they hurt, and the only medicine was given, he was given some tar to co- cover it up. So... This was the, the, the trip across the Atlantic, and it's just absolutely horrifying. But, um, and for example, Dombe, who is this very distinguished, you know, he's in many books of the story of science, shouldn't be surprising. He doesn't mention ever the prisoners, who they were very evident to him. They never come up in his discourse. So, you know, covering this was one of the great but fascinating challenges. The techno parts will kind of vote and things like that, but just the, the stories tell themselves because such vivid places, and we have such good detail from his, his uh, memoirs. So they, the Spanish bring them first to Cadiz and then to yeah. um, uh, to North Africa, a Spanish outpost. Um, help me again with the pronunciation. It is Ceuta. 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 Good, Spelled good C-E-U-T-A. Ceuta. Right. Ceuta. Right. And it, you know, I've I've been you know observing this place and working into my lectures for years, and it's mm-hmm. and, and and seen it in the news uh, recently. Um, in you know the past five years, you hear reports about. Uh, migrants breaking through the um, the wall, getting into Spanish territory. And it, it's a curious uh, place, and the book does an excellent job of explaining this uh, 
colonial frontier, borderland, contact zone, however we want to call it. So can you tell us the history of this, um, this Spanish colony and what, what was it like historically? And, and, and you've been there. What's it like today? Yeah, well, it's, it's just across from Gibraltar. It's one of the Hercules' pillars of um, two pillars, Gibraltar and the, the hills of Ceuta are mentioned by, by Hercules, a, a reference I didn't know. Um, and it's the ultimate, if you will, Spanish outpost in Africa. It's one of the things you have to be very careful about because in Morocco, they, they, would, they still don't recognize necessarily Spanish possession. And it's a spectacularly beautiful, very teeny area. It's the first time... I've ever been to a place where you step out of step out of the hotel or coffee shop, and on the left you can have the Mediterranean, almost a stone's throw, and a stone's throw on the right. I mean, it's that narrow. At one point, you can have the Atlantic Ocean. Not that these bodies are necessarily, you know, uh, no, different. It's the same body of water, if you will. So it's that very northern part. You can see Gibraltar. You can see Spain, and it had been Portuguese controlled um, for many years, for many for many centuries. Spanish took possession of it and Morocco was still contested. Um, it was while Tupac, while, um, Tupac Amado was there, um, there was a siege by Moroccan forces, if you will, and it was always was also the, the battlefront for the Spanish when they invaded uh, Morocco. So it was this incredible um, area back then, and today has this uh, very odd feel. I spent a week there, so I don't claim to be an expert, but it's this odd field in some ways sort of Spanish paradise, a very nice lifestyle and, and beautiful historic buildings and not too much tourism. On the other hand, when you go into Morocco from there, which I did, the fence is massive. It looks like the U.S.-Mexico border and there are Moroccans coming in uh, to work every day in Ceuta and people in all sorts of colonial, if you will. There's lots of barbed wire. So it's, it has been in the news a great deal. So there's Moroccan uh, laborers, domestic servants, and so forth that come They're in. They're coming every day, yeah. And then yeah. leave in the evening. I mean, like, yeah, and the evening of, of show back and they're coming. Or... Right, and you realize that part of you know, again, it's a very colonial feeling. People will say, "Well, the, the good life is middle class have might have you know maid come in every day and, and freshen up, or restaurants have you know much of the service is done by the restaurants." So, it sounds um, like sounds like colonial Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, work on yeah. But fortunately, and I, I must say this, there, there's a series of very dedicated historians in, in Spain and in South itself who, are, who are really like the project. And I just was very fortunate because I got their complete solidarity and, and, and a lot of help from these people. Yeah. So how many decades was he imprisoned there? He was there uh, about 33 years. 33 so this is years. The, yeah. So this is the bulk. And this know, tiny bulk little... And in, in, yes. a, in a dungeon down? No, this is the fascinating fortress. thing. This is probably yeah. my biggest discovery that I, that I if you will, uh, the, the other biographies of him, we'd always, we all would assume that. He got very lucky uh, in, in the one moment of fortune, as I emphasize. This is a man of incredibly bad luck, as you know, just despond that he's been mistreated. And God, he's, he's held, held up in this little hellhole. No guards are nice to him except for the Swiss guard. When they send him across on the boat, um, he gets to Ceuta and the, the, the person in charge of the boat sort of pointed him out to, and said, this guy is not, um, this guy is different. Because he was going across with murderers, um, kidnappers, others. And he said, he's, you know, he deserves better. So instead of being put in the jail, which are dungeon-like, I visited the remains of them and they're horrifying, as you can imagine. He was allowed to be what's called a confinado or confined. He could stay, he could move around. He had to report in 
And so he worked, he was uh, given basically to a silversmith who gave him room and board and abused him terribly. According to his memoirs, said they never let him sleep in the same place. They beat they keep the wife and the husband beat him if he didn't do well. He once spit. They saw him spitting in the house and, and they beat him up. So he eventually moves out on his own. He gets a small pension. He has to report in. He's confined to there. He's mistreated, but he's allowed mobility. And presumably, we don't. He raised product, and it's a good campesino. He knew how to raise food. I mean, he knew how to work a garden, and he probably did odd jobs and such to survive. So he's there for over thirty years. Yeah, in this in this small bit of territory. I mean, these these are historically a very important thirty-three years. I mean, so. Yeah. What, what, what years would he be there at this point? Is it uh, 1785? Um, 1787 to uh, 1820. Right. I mean, so this is, this is the age of revolution. And he's, right. as, the, as the title says, he's witnessing it from, from imprisonment in the Spanish possession in North Africa. I mean, yeah. just this, it, it's just these layers of history and intersections are just so fascinating with this case study. And then there's this incredibly human story. So the, the book, I mean, <laughs> the book is fabulous, but it is horrifically depressing to get through mm-hmm. um, those first couple of sections. I mean, you and Liz did an incredible recreation of, of the human suffering on the ships and, the, um, and the, the executions and so forth. But then there's this, this really touching moment um, that comes to dominate the last part of, um, of his life where he, uh, he makes friends with an Augustinian priest, uh, Marcos Duran Martel. Mm-hmm. And um, who, who was this priest? Where does he come from? And how did, how did he wind up? Uh, he's, he's a fellow prisoner, right? Right, right. How, he, how he's did, another, I mean, he's an equally fascinating character that I mean, I'm shocked there's not 18 biographies about. In fact, it's one thing I would love to sort of follow up on. He's a Peruvian mestizo, probably indigenous and Spanish roots. Um, Augustinian priest who gets very involved. He leads a massive rebellion in Huanuco, one of the early rebellions in the Wars of Independence in Peru. Um, and he, 1814. He where where, where a, would that be in, in today's that, in today's in today, if, uh, That would be from Lima going east, slightly north, going towards the Amazon jungle. So it's the Andes are a little bit greener. So it's, okay. it's you know one of the top. But but in in within in Peru, what is today right? the state of Peru? Yeah, but not near Cusco, a little bit farther north. Okay. And so there's this mass rebellion that has been understudied. There's some recent studies, but you know, been understudied, rising up a coalition of mestizos and local Creoles who say the Spanish, above all, is about tobacco. It's a tobacco area. They're they're imposing a monopoly. We're not getting enough money. The typical grievance, you know, material grievance of the rebellions of this period. And indigenous people, locals who said we're being mistreated, and there's this really bloody conflict. They run the Spanish out, dozens are killed. They control the area for three or four months, and then the Spanish send in the reinforcements from Lima. The big guns come in, the rebels divide, and they capture, they, they kill off the leadership. Duran Martel is saved, presumably, because he's a priest. Spanish are always not quite this happens in Mexico. I mean, they're capable of killing priests, but I mean, it happened in the years in Mexico and elsewhere, but he is sent off to Spain and ultimately makes it to Ceuta and I believe 1815 or 18, I think I, we have documents in 1815, he arrives there and he and Juan Bautista develop a friendship. It's just amazing. The love, the, the, the deep love just exudes from the book and Juan Bautista over and over again says, I would have never made it, but 
he's the one who got me out of all this. He kept my faith. And he was part of a circle of people who told stories about what's going on with the Napoleonic invasion of, of Iberia. What's going on with the British? Who's winning the wars? They're getting, they're, what's happening in Venezuela? What's happening in Mexico? This is when all the rumors, um, and here's where maritime history really helps because we have great material on this, are Ceuta is really just a perfect place because they could actually see ships coming into the Mediterranean, you know, throughout that. So Duran Martel is just, he's with him until the very end. He's with him when he dies in 1827 in Buenos Aires. In, in Argentina, Buenos Aires, yeah. Yeah. Um, does, how, does he help him with the appeals process? With uh, He does. He yeah. And this is one of the challenges is, um, well, we'll get to his memoirs in a minute, but um, Duran Martel is, 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 is well-trained to be an Augustinian priest. You need a high-level education, knew Latin well, and certainly helped him write his memoirs. I don't think that's it's very common in those periods. It's not, he's not a ghostwriter. He doesn't appear. I don't think he's a ghostwriter. This was very common. More humble people would have more literate people help him. And, and he's the one, by then, he is beginning to, in 1814 um, to say, I deserve to be free. Liberals take power, or they're at least in power in in Cadiz and areas, and, and Juan Bautista is saying, I have been a political prisoner for, for 27, 20, you know, 26, 27 years. I deserve freedom and begins telling his story. And what I argue is this is the root of his memoirs, because we'll talk a bit about the doubts about his memoirs. But Duran Martel is there. Tell your story. They've got time. They've got paper. And they start sending um, these documents. And I was fortunate to find some. I I'd hope to find more, but I was quite fortunate to tell his story. He was a martyr. He was not important to Bacamato uh, rebellion, but his whole tragic story. And how is, how is um, Juan Batista released? Well, when the, the liberals is a three-year liberal period, uh, 1820, 1823, most of the Americas had been liberated and become, you know, Mexico is Mexico. Um, countries are, are being liberated, they start freeing the prisoners. In this terrible bureaucratic uh, uh, snafu, the, the official document that frees them all says all prisoners who have been, you know, in jail since I don't know what year they put or they, they, they set up a date that was after Tupac Amado had gotten there. So the irony is he should have been the first one out, but it said, no, it doesn't include people who were jailed in the 1780s. We really just worried about, you know, after, I can't remember the date, 1795. So he's about to be released. They say, sorry, it doesn't say you, you've got to stay in jail. Duran Martel was included, and that's one of those passages where he stays. So they finally... This is where they use their contacts. So, wait, so Duran Mattel could have been freed, but he, he, could have been he stayed freed. with exactly. his friend. And this is what Juan Bautista yeah. says. This is love. This is, he's, yeah. you know, this is friendship. He could have gone back. He could have gotten any boat across the Americas, but he waited for me. And so what they do is they, they met some very prominent liberals um, in Spain. They're now in power. They're writing them. They're using their contacts. They're starting their story out. And this is, a, a, I was very fortunate the liberal press covers the story. So I was able to track these narratives of, you know, these, these very strong romantic. And again, it does sound like the, you know, the Count of Monte Cristo or something. Here's a guy who's been in jail for over 30 years. He was an unbelievable story. And this, this, this begins to circulate. So they finally um, are allowed out. 
and again, and you know, you couldn't you couldn't make this up on a novel. They're leaving Ceuta, and Juan Bautista falls downstairs and breaks rib. He's hospitalized and delayed. And there's the the book. I mean, there's a series of delays. They can't get the money together to pay for a decent ship. To, to pay for any to get to pay for the boat to get to across the Atlantic. And and where do they, where do they go? And where does so uh, they, where does he finish? They, his curiously, life? they end up in um, Buenos Aires. Which, and this is one of the other lovely surprises in the book, Juan Bautista was known in Buenos Aires because Argentina, and it wasn't Argentina yet, it was still the United Province, it became Argentina, um, had had an Inca moment in, in the 18-teens when, they had, when Argentina was seeking independence, debating what it was about, there was discussion about bringing, naming an Inca king. This would, you know, satisfy some of the monarchists, perhaps, and underlined Argentina's indigenous roots, which weren't nearly as strong as Peru or Bolivia. Um, and Juan Bautista apparently had been a candidate in discussions years earlier, 18, 1815, 1816. While, so while he's in prison. While he's in prison. While he's in prison. He on the other side of, of the world, they're talking about making exactly. him king. <laughs> and he gets to Buenos Aires. And, you know, and I might have overdone this, but I think it was he, in his memoir, said people looked at me and I didn't know what it was. So we play this up that, you know, he's the Inca king, who is this guy? And he yeah. gets there to Buenos Aires and that's why he's given a pension. He's, and they basically subsidize him to write his memoirs. So he's, he's not a destitute ex-con trying to survive on the street. He, he found out that he, he was in the running to be <laughs> for the throne and, and then they give him a pension and as you said, and they support him. And so the, the the last years of his life are obviously more comfortable than previous. They were. They're much better. He's yeah. free. He's writing. Um, he he had befriended an Argentine hero of Wars of Independence, Asopardo, who mm -hmm. apparently had him in his house. So he's yeah, he's relatively comfortable, but he still pens this try this very strong uh, letter to Bolivar, Simon Bolivar, saying, you know, my last hope. And it's a very rhetorical letter. It's a very hard one to translate. It's in the primary document section. It was really florid. My last hope is to see the land of the Incas. I want to come back to Peru, which he never does. Bolivar never answers him. We don't know if he never, ever got the letter. Bolivar's fate changes over time. Um, but he dies in 1827 in Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires. and it points out that he's, you know, never got to, um, see, go back to his homeland. Go back to his homeland. Yeah. 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 And in, in, it's in this period where he writes his mm, memoir, testimony, odyssey, I don't, right. I don't know what the correct terminology would yeah. be, but his, his experience, um, uh, for, for, you know, tell us, tell us a bit about this document, you know, wh why did he write it? And, um, how you you make a point that this is um, almost entirely forgotten. It's discounted. It's silenced. Um, its legitimacy is questioned. Uh, tell us about this document. Well, it, it, it's such a shocking piece. He, he wrote it very quickly. And so critics would say in the trial, he said he was illiterate. And then suddenly he uh, appears this very anti-Spanish document months after, you know, less than a year after he arrives. And this is where I argue that a, he wasn't illiterate, and this is why in the book I put his signature, which is one of the ways, if someone has a florid signature, even today you can see their levels of literacy, and it's I think he probably had a basic education, and then years in jail, or in Ceuta, with this very erudite priest, they probably read, they read Latin and things like that, and he also, the help, I believe, of Duran Martel, and of this other character I mentioned, Aso Pardo. Um, 
the other element, the story itself, I mean, how did he pull it back together so quickly? This is when I realized um, that he had done drafts of it in all of these legal documents. He had, you know, and in these interviews, or I'm not sure what the format was in the newspaper saying, I was part of the Tupac Amato rebellion. My brother was a martyr for independence. Suddenly, now that these countries are becoming independent, he's a martyr hero. I'm the half brother. And he tells his whole story. So he's, he's pulling this together. Critics have said, well, he couldn't have written it. He was illiterate. It came out too quickly. It was too sort of perfect anti-Spanish. But I make the very, I, I hope, obvious point. If anybody had a reason to hate the Spanish, Juan Bautista had a pretty good story. This isn't, you know, proto-nationalist or nationalist BS. This is his very, very strong feelings. Um, but as I describe in the book, one very important author, um, Pedro Aqueles, who published his beautiful, in the 1830s, the first set of documents to talk about a rebellion, he looked at it and said, this is a fake. And I think it was in part because it's such a shocking document. It's so brilliant. It's so well told. Too, too good too good to be true. Exactly. It's yeah. like forgers. You know, for, if you do a forgery, you're supposed to make some mistakes. But they also, some people pointed out, but he's got a couple mistakes about the rebellion. But, you know, and I'm getting old enough where this makes sense to me now. You tell a story about something that happened over 40 years ago. He wasn't there when his brother was executed. For example, yeah. he gets his brother's yeah. execution wrong. You know, that's a, a good police detective would say, when you, uh, someone was there, if they get a few things wrong, that's common. So it then entered, this published in Buenos Aires, um, sort of forgotten every once in a while, there'd be an essay about it. Uh, there were a couple of very uh, lovely articles about it in Argentine press in the 1930s, and it was sort of a debate about is Argentine indigenous, are we immigrants, and things like that. But all of this changes with another personality they bring in the book, uh, Francisco Loaiza, this Peruvian diplomat and author who had been in Seville in the 1930s, just before the Civil War, right, and he right. and his daughter had taken a camera, because I learned what photocopying you know, meant then, and took pictures of thousands of documents, including um, lots of documents from Juan Bautista. So the 19, 1945, I believe, Francisco Loaiza publishes it, this little teeny edition of it, with brilliant footnotes that I, you know, were... I mean, unbelievably good research. He was right on nine. I mean, I found a couple of things he got wrong in here, but really meant well. And this, if you will, began a bit of a resurgence of these memoirs since the, the 40s. But the, he's still not a very well-known figure today in Peru? No, it's, it's, it's surprising. I mean, in part because his brother overshadows him. He overshadowed mm. him in life and death, and he's such a figure. Um, he never returned to Peru. Um, I think my prediction is... Peru is having its bicentennial next year. 1821 is its official award of independence, date of independence. Some people say it should have been earlier or started with Tumacamado, but I think there's going to be growing interest in him. But he certainly is not that well known, and I, I there are a series of factors about it. I think I do think a lot of literary scholars have just doubted whether this was true. So I really hope my book at least says to people, this is legit. I can give you five or six really strong arguments why it's his story it was published i've done the you know paper trail of the different editions and things like that yeah um maybe a spanish edition of the of yeah. this yeah it'll happen yeah. it's happening yeah great great um so well that brings me to um the Gra oxford graphic history series why did you bring this into comic form yeah i well because i mean your series you participate in um 
it was so lovely that and so smartly done. I just said, this is a story for this. I mean, you, we, we, you know, listeners have heard these incredible cities, you know, transatlantic tale and, you know, Lima and Cusco and Rio and Cadiz. And I just thought it would be a really, it, it was so vibrant. Um, I thought it'd be, it'd be really worth telling in this form. So when I had the opportunity to work with Liz Clark and Oxford University Press, I was just delighted. Yeah. So tell us about the process. Um, how did you design the, the pages for Witness to the Age of Revolution? Um, how did you and Liz Clark create the images? Um, and by the way, I've, I've worked with Liz Clark too, and um, listeners might be interested to hear that she's in South Africa. I, I've never met her. Um, yeah. Did this entirely online. I assume you did the same. I don't think you went yeah, down absolutely. to Cape Town. Um, so how, how did you tell us about the process? How did you design the pages of the graphic section? Right. What did you want to convey with this, this visual form? And, right. and what sort of source material did you and Liz use to, right. um, to create the images? Yeah, no, this is, this is a great, these are the great questions. And, and I, I had some very good advice from a couple of people right away. This is a key to graphic history. When historians blow it is you can't have too many words. You can't have, you know, and so you've got to, in a, I'm an historian. I, I always dislike in writing and lecture assume knowledge. You know, I don't want to assume that my reader knows when the French Revolution was or what the, you know the Spanish liberalism. So I wanted to give a lot of information, but you couldn't do it. So Liz was just masterful about that. Um, There's one so, brilliant page. I think is it is it bayonets or something? There's a shot. There's a shadow. Yeah, and it makes a timeline. Yeah, yeah, and that was so that's cool. Liz. Yeah, oh, just I'm, absolute I'm, genius. So, so Liz really, so I had some good advice, but Liz really led me through. There's a process where you write the script, where you say, you know, what words, what images go there? What words, is it a quote or is it a declaration? And then where can I learn about this? And Liz, um, it's just an unbelievably fast learner. So, um, and again, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great challenge because generations of historians, most of us haven't thought a lot about material culture, except maybe one specific thing. So people, you know, from the middle of a lecture, a student says, what, what, what were they eating at that meal? Or what did their shoes look like? We say, well, I don't know, you know, or we make something up. So this is what you have to know. Um, so for example, the first draft, the Andes were far too lush. The Andes in Cusco are quite dry and not quite barren and too high. They're above the, the tree line. And so, this is a case where I said, look, here's a great um, web page of a Peruvian photographer in the 1970s, or, you know, took some pictures of, of books that I had around, and she just immediately uh, got it. And then, you know, I have emails to friends like, what did wine goblets look like in 1780? Because, or no, <laughs> yeah. 17, yeah, 1780, we have a scene with a wine, because somebody pointed out I had a completely anachronistic wine goblet so there was a lot of back and forth <laughs> yeah but she is just brilliant and as you said what she's really good at is wrapping into the images background information timelines maps things like that and that that's where her and that she takes all the credit for that yeah yeah she take all the credit fantastic and um you know i one of the things uh we mentioned previously is you you also bring in some maritime history and illustrate life on the boats um and then I, I love the inclusion of the maps. Um, it's something I did with Great Hanoi Rat Hunt, but mm -hmm. you, you and Liz really excelled here. And this is, this is a story that needs maps, right? I mean, they're, yeah. the, the, the maps of the rebellion. And I, I think that you blend um, Incan cartography with sort of mm -hmm. Western maps. Um, right. That was really beautiful. And then showing the, um, uh, his, uh, his odyssey around um, uh, 
uh, Cape Horn and um, to Brazil and on to Spain and Morocco and then back to uh, to South America. Um, what what did you want to hope? What did you try to do with the maps? Like, what was what were your goals? Well, I mean, I, I I always think I always think there should be more maps. I mean, I read an article in the New Yorker about the Czech Republic, and I said, why didn't they put a little teeny map? You know, because I don't know where that river is or right. something like that. So I it's, it's you know, and I'm um, so I I I always think that's the kind of when I read something in global history and I have no idea where it is, I lose interest after a while. You got to be locked in. Okay, this is that part of Albania. I've never been there, but so I really and and I just wanted to get. To emphasize, you know, how hard these journeys were. I mean, going overland in chains from Cusco to Lima. I mean, I've done that many times on bus. It's a 24-hour bus ride, and that's brutal. So I wanted to bring up these different elements in the maps. And Liz was, you know, the challenge there. This is a talent that, you know, I have zero of. Um, but is beauty and not overloading the page, getting the information. She was really good about that. I would ask, like, is that too much information? And, you know, some of the, the readers and things would say like, you don't, you don't need that date. He was at that Hamlet or something like that. Cause you, you know, a good comic is, is relatively clear. You don't, you, you don't want lots and lots of writing. So, and she also, you know, broke up the, I had imagined it before I started, you know, reading the Oxford uh, UP series and some of the others. I mean, there is still tendency to go be very boxy, you know, or, you know, read, you know, like a comic strip like and yeah. that's no longer necessary so she's got images flowing through the different different ones oh yeah yeah no the, the, those those pages are just fabulous i mean I, th- I think some of the the images of the spanish um uh violent repression where the uh the you know the figures who are being you know tortured that sort of sprawled right. and, and and you know shocking um horrific gripping but also respectful and tastefully done. And I know that's really yeah. difficult to do recreating images of such violence. One of the things I, I really loved is um, the way you guys included the documents into the graphic format. So the reader can actually see the sources as they're being created. And these are the sources that you looked at two centuries later. Can you, can you tell us about that? What, which documents did you include and why? And yeah, I mean, I, part of it was from Sota, I had, really just five or six documents about him, but they were, each one of them were like, you know, it's almost like classic history where, you know, a little fragment of something, anything, these ones, for example, a signature. That was when I said, this guy can write. You can't have that beautiful signature without being, being literate. And um, it was really exciting because we could track down where he lived. And of course, in Seattle, we went and it's now some big ugly shoe store or something. It's in relative downtown, but you know, it's just that great author thing to be able to walk and, you know, go there. Um, I remember, I can't remember what fantastic biographer said when he, when she, I remember, started a book. She always went to wherever the person lived, even though there was nothing left just to get this feeling. So, um, so yeah, we tried to include them and Liz did it instead of just having, you know, document section, which a lot of us would see. Well, she, she integrated them in there to get his signature, to get where he lived. Um, to get these sort of things. There's a few the rebellion itself as well. Yeah. Yeah. Did you run into any challenges um, with the graphic history? Anything you felt that you, you want to do, but you couldn't quite do it? Any limitations from the genre? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was, we, we tried to, we tried to, I mean, I, I really think it's important to have the, the comic, the, the, the art first. So we have that front and center. And then I have, you know, I have a, a brief preface. Then we have the, the art, which goes 80 or 90 pages. And then I have a, a, a pretty long introduction, eight, 15 or 20, with all the things we've been talking about, about, you know, 
did he really write these and, and things like that. Um, so, but there, there were certainly, I mean, I'll, frustrations first was just, how am I ever going to know this stuff? Like, you know, what the shoes look like in Buenos Aires. And I had some really great, like the people I acknowledge um, were just fantastic because someone, for example, an Argentine historian, Gabriele, a very prestigious uh, Argentine historian, Gabriele Meglio, ran, I, I ran by the Buenos Aires page and he said, you've got crosses all over the cemetery. There was actually a secularization campaign in 1821 and they were all gone. I would have never found them. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't even find it in secondary literature. Huh. Things like that, just the frustrations. I wanted to find more about his life in Buenos Aires. The, the archives are great in Argentina. And to our kind of surprise, we haven't found much. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other sort of question, the, the, the larger, I don't know, um, question I had throughout was, should some of these are much more first person. In other words, I don't have Juan Bautista saying things, except in a couple cases, they're almost all, we have quotes from the memoirs. And that's just a question of cultural appropriation. I felt really funny about doing that. I thought about, you know, what kind of Spanish do you speak, a very indigenous or a Quechua influenced, and that is often a form of, you know, very racist satire. So I didn't want to go there. So I felt like I wanted to respect his memoirs. You know, in a few places I have them say, go or but i don't it's it's not him telling his account and i think because of the richness of story we pulled that off yeah yeah well it you did it's really successful i mean it just um just really utilizes the the graphic genre um just in a fabulous way so we're taking up a lot of your time and we really appreciate that but i've got just two more questions uh for you before i let you go um first can you suggest two related books that you would urge listeners to read Sure. Um, I mean, I could, I could, there's a lot, there's a long sort of bibliographical uh, essay there, but I, I, for the Tupac Amato period, I really like Sergio Cyrilnikov's book. He's an Argentine historian. It's a translation. It's published by Duke University Press called Revolution in the Andes, the Age of Tupac Amato. This came out a year or two before my book. And I, you know, which, you know I believe it's 2012 or so and that worried me first, but it's actually a synthesis, but don't don't take that as oh it's 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 a it's a it's a textbook. No, it's a really brilliant distillation of what happened in Peru, which, which is more my focus. What happened in what became Bolivia, the Catarista, another rebellion. It's a really readable, very very smart account. If you're intrigued about that, I always say to start there. A book that really inspired me just as I was doing the copy edits. It came too late, but it's part of this. I mean, my, if you, you know, we sort of talked about this, what field did I not expect to read a lot in? And I ended up reading a lot in, and I loved it, maritime history. There's all this great stuff coming. Um, I really liked Vince, I really like, and so uh, Vincent Brown's Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war. This is about a 18th century rebellion in Jamaica. And, but it just brilliantly crosses the Atlantic. It doesn't just sort of, have the African part as a as a as, as a prologue, uh, but it but it integrates and it moves back and forth. It does microhistory and it pays an incredible fine attention to geography and cartography and space. So that's the book that right is always the final touches editing really inspired me. Yeah, and that was that was Vincent Brown. Tacky's Vincent Revolt. Brown, the Tacky's Revolt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, published at now, Okay, yeah, and and finally, what are you working on now, and what can we hope to see from you next? Well, I've got some different projects. We, I have with a colleague here at UC Davis, Michael Lasara. We've translated and edited a, a, the memoirs of uh, Jose Carlos Aguero in Peru, which is a sensational book. He is the child, his mother and dad were Shining Path guerrilla members, 
executed extrajudicially by the Peruvian state. And he wrote these, um, this incredible book, it's part memoir, it's part um, just philosophical reflections on memory, anguish, guilt. And this is an absolutely brilliant book that was a little bit understated or underdone. So what Michael, we've tra Michael was a lead translator, we translated it, and then we did a long interview with him, a 25 page interview with him about the book, what it's like. We met with him for several days. He's now a 40 year old public intellectual in Peru, really important about this. Shining Path is a shockingly controversial and very tricky topic. And that's coming out through University Press in I believe January. Okay. And the other sort of large project is I'm writing a book, on, a, a monograph on violence in the Shining Path, contemporary Peru is 1980s to 2000, what that war was all about. There's been a lot written about it, but I'm using the focus of violence and how did people get involved, what happened. This has proven to be a very, very, very challenging book, a very harrowing book but that I'm working on I'm drafting maybe in a year or two. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing that. So Chuck, Thank you so much uh, for speaking with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks so much to the listeners for staying with us. Okay. Um, so this has been a conversation with Professor Charles F. Walker of the University of California, Davis, and author of Witness to the Age of Revolution, The Odyssey of Juan Batista Tupac Amaro, published by Oxford University Press in 2020, a recent addition to the Oxford University Press's graphic history series. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>